Hey guys, before we start this episode of Carpe Manana, we wanted to give you a quick expectation of what you'll be hearing. A few weeks ago, we had Dr. John Mead and Dr. Peter Gurry here for our Scribes and Scriptures conference at Clearview. It went really well, and we had a great time hanging out with those guys, and we even got to sit down and record a podcast with them. That episode released a couple weeks ago, but we actually recorded two more for Pastor Shaw's other podcast, Hoi Polloi. We're going to put the link for that in the description of this episode, but we wanted to be able to share those episodes with you guys over here at Carpe Manana. So these episodes are going to be a lot deeper than our regular Carpe Manana episodes. They're going to be formatted more like Hoi Polloi, where Pastor Shot interviews his guest. But we wanted to share this episode with you guys so that you'll be able to dig deeper in your faith and understand the importance of studying God's Word. We'll be back to our regular Carpe Manana schedule next week. See you guys then. This is a Clearview podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's episode of Carpe Mignana, the show where we talk about how to capture tomorrow today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Those of you who are listening on the radio, really appreciate you guys joining the conversation. And uh, those of you who are subscribed through iTunes, appreciate you guys tuning in as well. If you haven't done so already, make sure you leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. That helps us to stay visible to your friends and family and helps you to be, uh, stay connected with all of our future content. Well, guys, at the start of every episode, we like to go around and uh, for the benefit of our listening audience, maybe we have some first-time listeners, uh, we want to go around and say our names and what we do here at Clearview. So to my right is... Abaddon Shah. I'm the lead pastor at Clearview Church. And to my right... John Galantis. I'm the pastor of worship and media at Clearview. And to my right... David Williamson. I'm the media specialist and the student worship leader here at Clearview. And to my right... My name is Rebecca Shaw. I'm the children's ministry coordinator here at Clearview Church. And to my right... Ryan Hill. And I'm the pastor of students and of assimilation here at Clearview Church. And that's actually not everybody who's sitting around the circle. We actually have a very That's special right. guest oh, with nice. us today. Pastor Sean, do you want to introduce our guest today? Absolutely. Well, today we have with us Dr. Peter Gurry from Phoenix Seminary. Uh, Dr. Gurry and I became acquainted about four to five years ago when my mentor, my esteemed professor, Dr. Maurice Robinson, told me the name of Peter Gurry. And I knew who he was based on a blog. Maybe we can talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, and I said, oh, really? He said, yes. And and he repeated that several times on the plane wow. <laughs> after we landed. <laughs> the day. I, was like, I was like, we got to find this guy so we can have the lunch show. We actually had, din- we had, we had dinner together. It was dinner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for uh, being here. We have a great conference going on. But but in this show, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, your interest and in, and in, in how you see your scholarship. So when I think about you and what you've been doing all these years through the Evangelical Textual Criticism block spot and other things, textual criticism, how did you get into New Testament textual criticism? That's a great question. I certainly <laughs> did not plan to do this. Right. Um, <laughs> When I was younger, I had no plans to do what I'm doing now. Uh, It really came about in high school. Um, Very funny story of God's providence and the way it works. I had been homeschooled up until ninth grade. In ninth grade, my mom enrolled me in the local Christian high school. And I was sitting in the guidance counselor's office, and he was signing me up for classes, and he said, you have to take a foreign language, and we have two options. You can take Spanish, or you can take Greek. Hmm. And I was the youngest of five children, and so I have always hated to do what everyone else is doing. Right. I've always just kind of like, well, if everyone else is doing that, I will do this. Was this a Christian school? It was a Christian school. Okay. And so it just so happened the principal at the time, he only taught two classes. One was drama and one was Greek. I wasn't interested in drama. So when when, when the guidance counselor suggested Greek or Spanish, I jumped at Greek. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And four years later, I had finished with four years of high school Greek. And this was Koine Greek, so New Testament Greek. And that really hooked me on mm. it. And I was, I, I remember 
my junior year when we got our Greek New Testaments in the class, and I was fascinated by the fact that behind my English Bible, there was this Greek New Testament. Wow. Wow. And then later when I got to college, I was even more fascinated to realize there were handwritten manuscripts behind my printed Greek Mm. New Testament. And so ever since then, I've always been fascinated by the process of how do we get from these thousands of handwritten copies that differ from each other to a printed Greek New Testament, and then to our translated English Bible right. that I read in my devotions. That's amazing. That's an yeah. early start. I mean, a lot of people start, they yeah. go to college or seminary mm-hmm. is where they first get exposed to Greek. Yeah. But you were doing this yeah. in, as a junior. And even then, when I got to Bible college, I, I intended to go into Bible translation. So okay. I was interested in Wycliffe Bible Translators wow. and was planning to go overseas. And I just kind of I had this realization that I liked the library and none of my friends did, at least not the way I did. <laughs> yeah, and I just thought, I was like, what does this mean? So eventually uh, I kind of started to realize, well, my professors teach my friends, and they benefit from it, and they're going to go off and be missionaries and pastors and all the rest. And I, I thought, somebody needs to be the, past, the professor right? and, and exactly. spend all the time in the library. So if I like doing that already, and if somebody needs to do that to help these other folks, then I guess maybe I should do that. Now, yeah. manuscripts, your love for manuscripts, yep. this began at uh, Moody? Or so that began at Moody at my undergraduate, yep. Right. And as I said, I realized there, was these, there were these manuscripts behind my printed Greek New Testament. And right about that same time, uh, a book came out by, by a man named Bart Ehrman uh, called Misquoting Jesus that was about the manuscripts. And he took a view that the manuscripts are so different and there's so many differences that he, he said, we really can't believe in the inspiration of the Bible anymore. Right. And what was more shocking than that was the fact that he'd gone to the same college I was at. Mm. He, was, he mm. went to Moody Bible Institute and so wow. was I. I was there. Wow. Um, and so that kind of got me even more interested. Right. Uh, and then that just set me on the path. And ever since, I've been hooked on it because wow. it's so fun and, and helpful to people. Yeah. And then you did some work with CSNTM. That's right. Exactly. So when I was at Moody... Uh, I heard about Dan Wallace partly through through Bart Ehrman's book because Dan Wallace was, was writing some really important critiques of that book right. and they were really helpful to me at the time. And I knew that Dan was taking students of his uh, around the world, particularly to Europe, and photographing manuscripts. Right. And I had this dream that I just I wanted to see a manuscript in real life, in person. Wow. Hmm. And so I thought, okay, I wonder if, if I can maybe go to Dallas Seminary, then maybe I can take his class Maybe I could become one of his interns, and then right. maybe I could go on a trip, and then maybe I could see a manuscript, right? Okay, so I was, I was thinking this through, and within about a year, year and a half of being at Dallas, I was interning for him, and I think maybe the first summer, uh, I was on a trip with him in Athens looking at my first New Testament manuscript, wow. and I was absolutely hooked. That was it. How many wow. times did you take such trips? I've made, I want to say I've been on three. Three. Now, at least three. And yeah. how many manuscripts, just roughly estimating, you've photographed or been? Oh, part with of? them, with TSNTM, that's a great question. Dozens and dozens. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine. I don't know. Wow. They, he his his organization has photographed thousands, probably, thousands, certainly right. hundreds, and I'd say they're approaching a thousand or more mm, wow. at this point. But um, and what a great yeah. gift to the scholarship uh, mm. that they're doing. It really because is. Now you can see things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember going into the program and and doing some work with. Um, uh, you know, just collating manuscripts through microfish, yes, microfilms, and yes. it was horrible. Yes. I mean, we would sit there and stare at these things, mm-hmm. not figure out what's what, what exactly is. Yeah. Is that a dot? Is that a yep. vowel? Is that a stroke? Yep. What is it? Yep. And and now to yep. have yep. such good high resolution photographs is unbelievable. And I, so. I tell my students, there's still nothing. There's still nothing like seeing them in person. 
Right. There's still some things you can only learn by seeing them in person, but the photography is so good nowadays. There's some things you can learn from the photograph that you actually can't learn very You'll well from the actual exactly. manuscript because wow. you can exactly. zoom in so closely. Wow. And this photograph is so sharp. It's almost at a certain point, it's almost like a microscope. It's incredible. Yeah, just wow. like you at a, at a ball game, you can watch a ball game mm -hmm. and and really get everything, get the whole ambiance of the place yep. but you can watch it on tv and then zoom right to the players right. and yeah. you can see the sweat you can that's see right. everything, <laughs> yeah. everything that's you, right. that's you can right. never see that yeah. well it was crazy because when we were in israel we saw some of those manuscripts as well absolutely yeah, yeah. it was just crazy to see that in yeah. real that's right. life that's right to see them in person is really yeah. incredible yeah. absolutely that's now incredible. now you went across the pond as you like to say yes it, to do your phd work yep. at cambridge right. yep Okay. Right. How was that? Uh, very difficult. <laughs> uh, it was very difficult, but uh, had a great time over there. Learned a ton, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity that we had to go over there. Difficult as in challenging to get in the program? Or difficult it was challenging to get in, and I, to be honest, I never thought I would get in. Mm. Uh, and by God's grace, I did. But also very difficult when we got there. Their, really? The British system is set up different than American education. Mm. American education is set up very much where it's teacher-led. So your teacher gives you a syllabus and tells you exactly what you need to read, how many pages and what book and all the rest. Uh, and the British program is the opposite. It's the professor is there to guide you, but you're the one in charge of wow. your own program. Wow. And so that's an adjustment. And I found that most Americans struggled at first mm. to settle in. Um, the benefit of it is it forces you to be an independent thinker and an, an independent researcher. And that's really the skill I wanted to develop mm. while I was there. But so. the pressure is pretty heavy because now it's I mean, on you. It's on you. <laughs> and then also, you know, Cambridge is a place where you're walking down the street and you may pass a Nobel Prize winner. Wow. And so I, I came from a seminary and I felt like I was kind of the smart guy in most rooms. Right. <laughs> and when I went to Cambridge, I was always the dumbest guy. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know so about it was, that. It was but... very humbling. Very well, humbling. But also, it was great because yeah. it was such a fun opportunity and such a, uh, a wonderful learning environment. And Cambridge is so old and they have libraries there that have thousand-year-old manuscripts. Um, and so I always tell people it was like, for an academic, it was like Disney World. Wow. You know, wow. it was just, by the end, it was just a blast. It's such a great place to be. And then you also had a scholarship or um, a, a fellowship in Tyndall House. Yes, yeah, so I had, a, I had a desk at Tyndall House. So Tyndall House, uh, for those who don't know, is an evangelical research library at, uh, in Cambridge, in the city of Cambridge. Um, and it's really a place that attracts uh, some of the best evangelical scholars in the world who come in to use their incredible world-class library and do great research. A lot of commentaries get written there. Mm. Bible study notes get written there. Um, it's amazing to see how much comes out of Tyndale House. But yeah, it's also just a great environment. It's very collegial and, and challenging also, mm. but collegial in the sense that you're with um, other evangelicals who trust the Bible and love the church mm. and want to see the gospel proclaimed, but also care about scholarship at the highest levels. Right. So it was really right. a wonderful marriage between those so, two. So people like Pete Williams. Yep, Pete Williams and Dirk Young. Dirk Young. There. Was Peterhead? Uh, Peterhead was there when Peterhead I was there, was there. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So All he right. transitioned toward the end while I was there. But yeah, he was there my first two years and he's great to work with. And now your co-editor... Elijah mm -hmm. Hickson is there. That's right. Elijah Hickson is at Tyndall House now. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah very happy so. for him. He sends me pictures ever so often. To <laughs> make me jealous, I think. I don't know. <laughs> so, so you you recently have done a lot of writing. Um, how much do you want to talk about the CBGM? Oh, oh man. <laughs> Goodness. How much do your that, listeners that was, want me to talk that, about? That it? was your that was your PhD dissertation. That's right. Right, yeah. and it was published. Yeah. 
Yep. And um, so yeah. do you see much more being done with that? Or is it kind of like, you know what, I've done that. I'm kind of moving further. Uh, that's a good question. My supervisor wants me to move on and do other things. Yeah. Um, I, and I probably should. There's still still work to be done on it, I think. It's probably good to let other people do some of that. Um, but I do still get asked to write things on it hmm. because um, having wrote, written my dissertation on it now, um, I do know more about it than I ever thought I would. So, <laughs> well, you're um, the, the expert, <laughs> yeah, right? Outside of, of yeah, the Moonster crowd. Yeah, there's right? a few of us in the world, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but I really got into it because, I, again, I was interested in how we get our Bible. Hmm. And I knew there was this new... Uh, computer-assisted method being used, and I knew it was changing my Greek New Testament, and I wanted to Which know why. title of one of your articles. That yes, you that's written. right. Yes, why your Greek New Testament is changing. That's right. Um, and so I want to know why it was changing and if the changes were good or bad. Mm. That was real. Those are really the only two questions I wanted to answer, and it took me three years to answer them. You know, right. a little slow, but... <laughs> well, I read... <laughs> Part of your dissertation, I wouldn't say every page of it, and it's, it's intense. Yes, it is. It's intense. I mean, it's anything you want to know about CBGM, yeah. Yeah. the good, bad, the ugly, yeah. everything is in there. Yeah. So it was, it was, uh, it yeah. was very enlightening, very well, helpful. Well, I, I tried to make it as comprehensive as I could, and my, and one of my main concerns was to be fair to the method and to understand it well. It is complicated, right? And I was very concerned that none of my criticisms were based on misunderstanding, right? Right. So I would rather understood it and then had nothing to criticize then misunderstand it and have a lot to criticize if that right. makes sense and then with tommy wasserman yeah. as well you've written yep. a book so then with tommy we've written a, a simpler introduction to it one that's really designed for students and professors as well uh this meant as kind of a first stop to, for understanding it or a first right. point of departure any edit um second editions coming anytime soon or not on that not as far as we know okay. so we put we finished writing it just as the axe volume came out that, right that the cbgm was used on so maybe when they finish working on mark uh or john if there's enough maybe there it would be worth adding a chapter two chapter or, something. or something i'm not sure but right. yeah yeah okay. so far p people have seemed to find it helpful most people say it's still a bit tough and that's probably just because of the topic but I think uh, we've we've had some good feedback as well. Right, right. Well, it was helpful to me, yeah. and uh, so I'm I'm grateful for good. your scholarship in that direction. The other subject that you've talked a lot about is the number of variants yes. in the New That's Testament right. text. Yeah. Yeah. So could we could we dive into that for a few sure. moments? Yeah, sure, absolutely. <laughs> How many are there? <laughs> no one knows. Um, no one knows because we haven't actually compared all of our manuscripts to right. each other. Uh, we have thousands of New Testament manuscripts, and they take a long time. I mean, you know, we have about 60 manuscripts that are complete New Testaments, but th that takes a lot of time to go mm. through all 60 of those through the whole New Testament, and right. then you add to that hundreds and hundreds of others. So what I, what what I did was people keep throwing out numbers about how many variants there are. Right. Um, and what I found fascinating was when I, when I went back into the history of the literature, I found people saying different numbers. So if you go back 100 years, people are saying, oh, there's 100,000 variants. Right. And then the number just keeps creeping up. And there's only really a few points in, in that 100-year history where people give any, any actual reason for why they increase right. the number. Right. And, um, and so people even say, still in writing about it, things like, well, the best estimates are, mm. or scholars say. Without or, a footnote. Without a footnote. <laughs> and the reason is because... There is no, nobody has ever actually done the work. Right. It's, right. They're all just estimates, and they're really just guesses. Would, would you say Mill was probably the first and the last one with the well, 30,000? Well, so Mill, yeah. So Mill is where we get the number 30,000 right. from. And that's not Mill's number. Mill died very shortly after his right. edition was published in 1707. But, you know, he, so 
and even the 30,000 number is itself an estimate. Right. Nobody's actually counted the number of variants in his edition. So right. that number itself is an estimate, and then people add to that 30,000. So it wow. creeps up to 50, and then 70, and then 100, then it goes up to 120. And with Bart Ehrman, we get up to 400,000. And then, in fact, you know, even one scholar has said maybe as many as 750,000. And then the, the bigger problem with all of this is besides the fact that nobody's telling us where they're getting these numbers from, they're not actually telling us what this is an estimate of. Mm. What is the definition? What, yeah. what, what are we uh, estimating? Yeah. Are we estimating the number of variants in Greek manuscripts? Mm. Or is it mm. Greek manuscripts and Latin manuscripts and Syriac manuscripts and Coptic? Fathers or right, whatever. And the Church Fathers, right. Right. And most people don't even say. And some people give the exact same number and give a different definition of what it is they're estimating. Right. So it's just people guessing, really, is what it was. So what I did was I thought, you know, we have a few places in the New Testament where someone has come along and compared all the manuscripts we have, or at least all the continuous Greek manuscripts we have, for that, say, chapter. Right. Or in the case of the Jude, John the book 18. Of Jude, John 18. John, yeah, John 18. Right. So I thought, okay, if I just go through and do the boring work of counting mm. in these studies. Which is not easy to do. Which is not easy and, and dull. <laughs> Several people warned me not to do it. Um, then from there, then, you can set up a basic formula and estimate from these samples right. what we can extrapolate for the whole New Testament. Right? And again, the key word is estimate. You, and the key word is estimate, not, right. Still and then not even with my it. estimate, I was trying to be very clear about what I'm estimating. And it is variants in Greek manuscripts only. So I'm right. not interested. I'm, I'm not including versions or the fathers. And I'm not including spelling differences either. Mm. Because mm. the data sets I had to work with didn't have spelling differences in That's them. Right. Or at least not a lot. So... Again, so the number I came up with, is that what you want to know? Can we, <laughs> so we finally get to the point, right? Uh, no, I mean, this, this, <laughs> this, this helps because it, this, this kind of discussion brings some sanity yeah. to this whole topic of yes. how many. That's right. Because That's right. Uh, I, I, what I've noticed is either you have people claiming that, man, there's so many, there's millions or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you have people on the other side saying, oh. No, not really. Yeah. We don't have that many at yeah. all. And it's yeah. like, wait a minute, yeah. that is not, neither of those things yeah, are that's right. correct. We do have quite a lot. Right. So I estimate there are about half a million. Mm. Uh, and I'd like to give half a million because that's a nice round number and kind of reinforces the fact that we're estimating here. Right. We're not counting. Right. Now, of that, a large chunk, not quite half, but close to half, are what we call nonsense readings. Mm. Those are variants where the scribe has literally written something that makes no sense. Right. It's like when I'm typing, and I mean to type the word the... And instead of spelling it T-H-E, I spell it T-E-H. Right. 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 You might know exactly what I meant to write. That's right. There's no te. But there's no no word te yet, okay? Uh, Except in my emails. Um, So those are nonsense readings. So think about that. A large chunk of these half a million are already right out of the gate nonsense readings. Another chunk of them are what we call singular readings. They're readings Mm -hmm. that are only found in one manuscript. So they have very little... Um, to say for them being original, they're almost certainly created by scribes and are right. just mistakes. And then it's within that that we have to work with in terms of trying to reconstruct the original New Testament, right? right? Um, and the illustration I like to give to give people a sense is in John 18, there are over 3,000 variants. Mm. Okay. Wow. Which is a lot. Um, there are about 800 words in John 18 mm. to put some perspective on that. But if you check some good commentaries, you will find maybe half a dozen of the, those variants get discussed right. in, the, in the commentaries. In the really good ones. Yep. And then if you look at English translations, which try to give you the most important ones that affect translation or theology or something, uh, I checked a handful of English translations. They don't mention any right. of them, not right. a single one. Exactly. Okay? And that's probably fairly accurate in the sense that of those 3,000, none of them really rise to the level of being 
being so difficult to decide or so important mm. that they deserve to go in an English Bible footnote. Right? But but we so. we also need to clarify when you hear a statement like, well, the variants or or what we're dealing with these mistakes, they don't affect doctrine. I mean, you hear right. that often. Yeah. And by well-meaning yeah. people. Yeah. Now the way I like to say it is <laughs> the way I like to say it is. They affect doctrinally important texts sometimes, but because of the way we construct Christian doctrine and theology, no variant throws some doctrine into uncertainty. Right. Exactly. Does that make sense? Right. So, for example, Jesus' prayer from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, mm. is not found in some really important manuscripts. Correct. And that's a t- in my mind, that's a pretty tough variant to resolve. Luke uh, 23. Luke 23, yeah. Right. Um, but it's not like if we don't have that prayer, as important as it is, I think, uh, it's not like, well, that means Jesus doesn't tell us to forgive our enemies. <laughs> right. Because, in fact, he does <laughs> tell us to do that elsewhere. It's all over the Gospels. Yes. Right. Exactly. And then, of course, you know, we find in the book of Acts, we find Stephen doing that when he is stoned to death. That's right. right. And so it's not like it's a question about whether or not we need to love our enemies mm. and forgive mm. those who do wrong to us. That's it's right. very clear from the rest of the Gospels that, of course, we do. Absolutely. Right? So I wouldn't say that that variant doesn't matter, mm. right? I it think doesn't it matter. does matter whether Jesus prayed that from the cross. That's extreme, an extremely powerful example Absolutely. of forgiveness from the cross, yeah. right? Mm. But I wouldn't say it throws Christian doctrine into uncertainty. Right. So it affects sense? the doctrine, but it doesn't... Doesn't call it d- into question. question right, yeah, exactly. It's not like our forgiveness of enemies is is up in the air right. because of this variant. That's Before right. we get off the topic of variants, I did want to ask Pastor Shah, your, your PhD work goes heavily into like different variants of the text, right? It goes into, can, I mean, can you just kind of explain how you're working in that field? Sure. I mean, I mean, similar to what uh, Dr. Gurry is talking about, you know, I, I have a section in which I quote him many times on uh, <laughs> right. the counting of variants because sometimes in, in our efforts to, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, discredit right. the Bart Ehrmans, we have kind of said things that we shouldn't. They're not text critically accurate. We People say, no doctrine is affected, mm-hmm. or this is, and, and sometimes they even say Bart Ehrman says that, and he may, but what I'm saying, what I try to explain is pretty much the same line with what Dr. Gurry is saying is, yes, there are some very significant variants out there, mm-hmm. but to say that if we don't solve that problem, our doctrinal trinity or the deity of Christ mm-hmm. is in jeopardy, that's, right. that's not the case. Yeah. Right. And I think even Ehrman says that in, in, yeah. in his book. Yeah. He basically says at one point that, that his mentor's view, Bruce, his mentor, Bruce, Bruce Metzger, Metzger, right, right. Bruce Metzger's view is that no variant affects Christian doctrine. And, and Bart says, he doesn't quite say he agrees with that. He kind of says it in a roundabout way. I right. think what he says is, my view is not a problem for his view. Right. Exactly. That that's sense? right. Something so, like that, yes. I, I don't yes. know if he's trying to... Th- to thread a needle on that or not, but I yeah. think that's what he says. Yeah. So on one hand, it's like this is critical, but not enough to say. Well, I, I guess Trinity is uh, is yeah, up right. in the air now. That's right. And I always uh, the example I love to give people is First John five seven. Okay. If you read that in the King James version, it's the most explicit <laughs> teaching of the nature of the Trinity. Right. Okay. Um, and yet, it's not found in Greek manuscripts until around the time of the Reformation. Right. We're talking about the comma Johannium. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so I ask people, well, how did people believe the Trinity before the Reformation? And they say, well, it's found in some Latin manuscripts before that. Okay, great. But how did the Eastern Church believe this? (laughs) And how did we have the Council of Nicaea in 325 where they affirm the Trinity very strongly? And the answer is because they didn't depend on one single verse for the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. Right. That's not how we ever do doctrine. That's right. At least when we do it well. 
right? That's right. So, so I mean, and, and that even that verse, uh, there's a lot of uh, conspiracy theories yes. behind it. How exactly that that's jumped right, yes. into that's right. uh, that's right. how it, into the how text in tradition? tradition. Yeah. yeah. How do you read around variants? Like if you like if you're doing individual study, or if you're pre- even prepping for a sermon, and you and you know you're going to preach, or you're going to write about a verse that has a lot of variants. How deep into it do you actually go when you're? Well, okay, I'll answer and then have uh, Dr. Gurney answer as well. Right. I mean, to me, I, I want to make sure first I deal with the text. So I always look at the text in, in the NA28 uh, and UBS. I'll, I'll just bring them side by side. What are the issues there? Mm. And sometimes commentaries will highlight them. Sometimes they don't. Right. But if I find there's an issue there, how significant it is, and then I will first handle that. If it's significant enough to bring it up because it affects people's translations, then I will bring it up and say, you know, if you're, some of y'all are using NIV, this is what it says. Some of y'all are using this. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll try to, if you notice, I do yeah. that in my sermons. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't spend a lot of time on that because uh, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to do a that. A sermon do isn't it? usually the place to tell, teach people about text criticism. Now, occasionally, you've, you've got to deal with it, don't you? Right. I usually kind of fall back on the English translations. Mm. Exactly what you said. If there's a footnote in translation or a difference between translations I know my audience is going to have in the, in the audience, then I'll make sure that I've checked it so that I have something to say. Right. Because I don't want to leave them with open-ended questions at the end of the sermon. Um, but I've always found that, for me, one of the things I love about textual criticism is it forces me to pay closer attention to the text of the Bible. Absolutely. Right? It forces me to do better interpretation and exegesis because... I'm, I'm looking at the variants and I'm thinking, okay, these manuscripts say this and these manuscripts say this. What is the difference in meaning between that? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, the answer is very little, right? But, but th- even this thinking about it forces me to think about the text more and more carefully than I would otherwise. Does that right. make sense? Absolutely, yeah. 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 And so, I think that's, what, that's, big. that's the goal of seminaries, really, mm-hmm. right? To, mm-hmm. You may not become a text critical scholar, but at least you will look at that Greek that's right. text. That's right. And it brings a sense of humility yep. uh, when, you, when yep. you look at it and say, no, I may not know everything about it, yep. but now let me approach mm-hmm. and answer the needs and the lives of the people. So that's pretty awesome. Now, uh, Text and Canon Institute, your, your, uh, yep. your co-partner in this thing. Yes, <laughs> uh, Dr. Dr. John Mead. Dr. John Mead, yes. and you have started the Text and Canon Institute. Would you mind telling us a little bit about sure, that? Sure, we'd love to. So uh, Dr. Mead has been uh, teaching at Phoenix Seminary for about eight years now, and then I'm going into my third year. And kind of what happened was it didn't take us very long to realize we had something unique going on at Phoenix Seminary, and that was we had someone who was an expert in the textual criticism of the Old Testament hmm. and someone who's an expert in the New Testament. And most seminaries have... It's a have, great combination. Yeah, it yeah. is. I know. Two, two young together. guys, young profs, <laughs> oh, yeah. and uh, you know, the field is wide unto harvest. Yeah. I, mean, it's so awesome. I thought you meant the Old Testament and the New Testament were a good combination. <laughs> but, yes. John, John and I are as well. Peter, That's so. true. Yes. Um, so we just looked around, and as far as we could tell, no other seminaries had somebody doing both. Hmm. Um, uh, or if there were, there were very few and far between. And so we just saw an opportunity to do something unique and to combine our skill set. And so the vision for it really is to do top-tier academic work, hmm. which both of us have a passion for, um, while at the same time helping the church with what we learn from that academic work. 
So we're trying to do both. And then as part of that, we're trying to train the next generation as well. Hmm. So we have a fellowship program, which is a, a generous scholarship for a THM student. And you have one? And right we have now? one right now. Yep, his name is Clark Bates, and we have several others who are interested for the, the coming years. That's awesome. So we're really, really excited to be attracting some wow. really good students. And they will probably move on to PhD we somewhere. So. Yeah, our hope is that they go on to do PhDs, they end up teaching somewhere or maybe pastoring somewhere, and they, they have the skill set to the network grows. With. Yep, and yeah. the network grows. Wow, that's awesome to to hear that. So um, there's a great book coming out. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Uh, Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism. You're co-editing that book with... With Elijah Hickson. Elijah Hickson. Yep. So that that book has been in the works for a couple years now, and that's kind of a a labor of love for us. Um, We kept seeing the same mistakes in Christian apologetic literature. Mm. Um, so partly because of Bart Ehrman, uh, evangelicals have felt a need to respond to him, and, and rightly so, I think, um, because at least as he makes his claims, he says they challenge the inspiration of the Bible, and so evangelicals have had to respond to that claim. In the process, though, there's been a, a pro- proliferation hmm. of apologetic literature on this, and sometimes what happens is the same thing that happens in the manuscript tradition, where things don't get, get transmitted well, and so maybe... Right. Uh, a statement that was correct the first time in the scholarly liter- literature, by the time it gets boiled down to the popular literature, it's gotten abused badly right, right. And, and totally misstated or taken out of context or something. So what we thought is, you know, what we need is for a group of, of trained, if I can use the term, professional text critics to mm. come together and write a book that would serve apologists, because the reality is most apologists cover a whole range of issues. Absolutely. We're trying to deal with text criticism one day and the problem of evil the next day. Right. And that's a huge span. Absolutely. From philosophy to manuscripts is a big jump. Yeah. So we thought if we get a group together and take kind of go piece by piece, chapter by chapter, and answer uh, really key apologetic issues and say, Mm -hmm. let us give you the most up-to-date, most responsible kind of statement on how many manuscripts there actually are, Mm -hmm. on how we can responsibly compare New Testament manuscripts two manuscripts for classical literature, or mm. in my case, how many variants are there, right? right. Um, so each chapter is kind of a different, what we call myth, mm. that is a, some kind of idea that's in the that's popular in the apologetic literature, but often gets misused, and we try to then s- correct it gently, uh, I hope, and helpfully mm. to the apologist, and then we, at the end of each chapter, we've got some summary statements that they can use as kind of pull-away bullet points, key statements that they can then use in their ministries. And I, and I think this book will not only benefit an apologist, um, a Christian apologist, but also the the people. Uh, in s- seminary students can yep. benefit from this. Yep. Pastors, Bible teachers, Sunday school teachers. I think yeah. this, this can have yeah. a yeah. great impact. I yeah. mean, if, We try to write it. It is academic, but it, we try to be pretty accessible and not assume right. too much in each hmm. chapter. Hmm. I will warn you, I think it's the first book that IVP has ever published that had Syriac in it. Mm-hmm. But it's all transliterated, so it's all put into English letters, for right? You, okay, right. and translated. So just p- put people at ease a little bit, right? That. Yeah, right. We try to be accessible. Well, it's it's great to to see textual criticism um, coming back in the discussion mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a sane way. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, we have the text, but you know, we're walking 
in humility and yeah. knowing that yes, we can claim that yes, we do have the text and yes, we can reach the text, but be humble. That's right. Because there and are places exa- we that's have. That's exactly right. What we say in the book is we agree with the apologists on their right. conclusion. That's right. It's just we want to help them get there in a better way. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have a little trepidation when you right. <laughs> talk about those issues, right. and hopefully this book will take well, exactly. away some of those yeah. <laughs> questions. Yeah. Pastor, I know this is part of your dissertation, uh, New Testament textual criticism, but what would you say is the impact that textual criticism can and should have on the life of any believer? Well, this conference, Apologetics Conference, uh, this weekend with Dr. Gurry, Dr. Mead, is one step in that direction to help educate the people because you know they're daily bombarded by statements uh, on popular media, social mm-hmm. media about mm-hmm. you know uh, the Bible is has errors or there's so many different Bibles of the Church, the Orthodox Church won out over in a social political struggle, and so I mean it's a lot of stuff and, and uh, we need to educate our people yeah. because they're hungry, they're they're looking. Mm-hmm. And a conference like this uh, helps them realize, no, there is another side to the story. And it's not just the same old rhetoric. You know, we, we, mm-hmm. we throw that, no, don't listen to those, those professors. Don't listen to that. They're all going to shake your faith. That's not the answer. They need to hear uh, what's going to happen here tomorrow mm-hmm. <laughs> right yeah. at Clearview Church. That's right. Um, yeah, so, I, I think we don't do ourselves any service in the long run if we ignore... Right, the issues that critics are raising, or or mock them. The that or happens. Them. That right. happens yeah. a lot too. Now, look, to be fair, especially on the internet, there are critics that deserve to be ignored. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to be clear, uh, but uh, particularly serious questions that are raised about the Bible. If we really believe it's true, then let's let's investigate it. Exactly. Right? We don't really have anything to be afraid of. Right. If 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 we think that 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 the Bible is true that Jesus Christ is real, mm. uh, all truth is God's truth. Then let's uh, let's get our hands you know, dirty in the sense right. of getting we, to work. Exactly. We do have the truth on our side. It we just do. need to be yeah. peeled and let people see it. Definitely. Yeah. I agree. Well, Dr. Gurry, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate that and, and look forward to what, how God is using you and thank what you. he's going to be doing through you and your scholarship in the days ahead. Well, thanks. It's been great, great being here. Appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. Well, guys, that is all the time we have for this week's episode. Dr. Gurry, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if you guys have any questions about the stuff you heard on the episode, be sure to send us an email to carpamanana at clearviewbc.org. We'd love to hear from you guys. Love to hear what you took away from this week's episode. And make sure you guys tune in next week, same time, same station. And uh, make sure you, if you're not already, make sure you subscribe on iTunes. That way you can stay up to date with all of our future content. Thank you guys so much. And we'll see you next time on Carpe Manana.